Morning, everybody. Yeah, it's almost afternoon, but still, still qualifies as morning. Uh, my name's Larry Kayser, and I am the marriage pastor here uh, at Fellowship, and I also get the privilege of serving on the elder board. So uh, anyway, I'm glad to be here with you, to, here with you this morning to uh, share with you from John chapter 12. You know, the last two weeks, we've been in John chapter 11, which is the story of raising Lazarus from the grave. You know, I, I, one of the things I love most about that story is uh, that he was called out before he came out. I just love that. So our text this morning examines the response, really, of three different groups of people to this pretty miraculous disruption. They all hear the same news, but they all end up responding pretty differently to it. So, and the study will remind us in many ways of how our lives actually are shaped by the way that we respond to things that happen to us, whether they're great things, blessings, whether they're really hard and unexpected things, whether they are loss, whether they are, you know, unexpected treasures that come along. Anyways, the reality is that how we respond to life and what comes with it shapes so much of who we are, who we become. So, you know, if I step back a little bit farther, a little bit bigger picture, even Christianity itself, in some ways, exists as a response to the work of God in the world. It exists as a response to God sending his son to become a man, to die on the cross, to live a life we could never live, to die on the cross, to be raised from the dead, and to do all of that to take care of the brokenness in us, to deal with our sin and to make a way for us to know God the Father, God the Creator. So really, Christianity in this very large sense is this amazing opportunity for us to respond to God's initiative towards humanity on this earth. You know, and I've really come to believe, I've been, you know, I've been a Christian now for about 46 years, I guess. It's hard to believe. But I have come to believe that our responses have the potential to ignite our faith, to make God much more real to us on a daily basis, and to give us courage, to give us hope, and they can also, our lack of response can also teach us to be self-protective, to make excuses, to let our fears dominate us and stop us from making decisions. Sometimes our comforts and our desires and our fear of losing control all can stop us from responding, or in a sense, that is our response. So as we learn to respond to the promptings of God, it can become one of the most significant ways to not only grow our faith, but to help you and I know inside of ourselves that God is alive in us and he's real. I just can't tell you how significant it is to cultivate an awareness and a willingness to respond to the promptings of God in our life. 
So we're going to look at three responses from three different groups of people to the resurrection of Lazarus. You know, <laughs> and I hope that as we go through this, we all can find places where there's a, a transferable reality from their life to ours when it comes to our responses. So I'm going to look at this out of order this morning because I want to end with the very first one. So as we jump in the story here, we'll start with verse one because it creates the setting. Then I'm going to move all the way down to verse nine and then we'll circle back by the end. So verse one says, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And all I want to say about this is this gets us into the context from a time perspective. So we're six days before Passover. So we're six days away from Jesus entering into the most significant week of his life on earth. <clears throat> and he had left Bethany after Lazarus was raised from the dead because the religious leaders were seeking to have him arrested. So he went off into a bit of hiding. And we're not sure if this takes place a few weeks or a month or two after that, uh, the actual act when Lazarus was raised, but we know it's something in that, in that um, time frame, most likely. So Jesus comes out of hiding and he's back in Bethany at the home of Lazarus, getting ready to celebrate the Passover. So the Passover, just a quick little thing on the Passover. You know, this was a, a, a festival, a pilgrim festival, where people came, thousands of people came from all over the ancient Near East to celebrate, right, the, the Israeli, you know, freedom from Egypt and sent out into the desert and the amazing act of God to part the seas and do all that he did to... Uh, create freedom for the Israelites. And so every year when they come and celebrate, every year they're, they're waiting, they're waiting, they're waiting for the appearance, the coming of the Messiah to ultimately set them free. Okay, so that's the context of our, our week here. So let's start now with verse nine through 11. It says, when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. <clears throat> so the first group I want to talk about their response are the chief priests. We already know from the previous chapter that they wanted to arrest Jesus, that they want to put him away too, so what was their response to the resurrection of Lazarus? Well, they decided that the best thing they could do with Lazarus to quell this uprising would be to kill him. So they're going to dig a hole and bury the evidence of Jesus' power, love, and grace when he raised Lazarus from the dead. So that's their solution, is to kill him. So <clears throat> no one could point to the, that way, nobody could point to the walking miracle and the power of Jesus. So imagine just for a minute the ugly irony of this whole process. They're going to bury some they're going to bury the evidence of this new life, world-changing miracle. Imagine how desperate, how angry or how afraid the chief priest must have been from the disruption of the of Lazarus's resurrection to have come up with the idea to kill him. Can you imagine that if that happened 
what you might want to do is go interview him. Wouldn't you want to talk to him? Wouldn't you want to hear what in the world? You were dead. You were dead for four days. What was that like? What was it like when you were raised from the dead, when you walked out of the tomb? What did you experience? Were you ticked off because you had to come back? I mean, how did you feel? I mean, wouldn't you think that might be how the religious leadership might walk into something of that nature? But that isn't where they ended up. They decided that they were gonna undo exactly what God had already done. They were gonna kill somebody that God just brought out of the grave. Imagining if God wanted, didn't want Lazarus to, to be dead, the chief priests weren't gonna have much luck putting him to death, I don't suspect. So they initially wanted to bury the evidence. The second kind of irony in all this is the chief priest is the one that's trying to undo this work of God. And the chief priest were meant to be mediators between man and God. They would have been the ones trying to put the work of God on display to all the community, to all the nation of Israel even. Why in the world would they wanna just <laughs> kill this guy? Well, they simply didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah and therefore anything that was coming from him somehow was evil or it was phony or it was false. And so they misunderstood Old Testament scriptures that would have pointed him towards Christ. They claimed to be experts, but they were lost. And Jesus called them blind guides. They were literally willing to commit murder in the name of God. You know, I suspect a large part of the reason for their spiritual blindness, and this is the part that sometimes hits a little close to home just for me as a person. I think part of their spiritual blindness, and maybe the biggest part, was their fear of losing control, losing privilege, losing lifestyle. Why? The chief priest really had a great thing going. They had a lot of power and a lot of influence in the culture. They really did. They, um, they had a, a comfortable relationship with the Roman rulers. They, Rome didn't want to... They didn't want to cause uprisings around the people, so they allowed the Jews to essentially live out their religious life and practice their temple work and the sacrifices in the temple, and they let them always um, practice all the feasts the feast throughout the year, and the, they were able to collect the temple tax. You know, the priests really had carved out a pretty good life of privilege, and only every now and then something had to you know, maybe be sacrificed to stay under the thumb of Rome a bit. But the chief priests had a lot to lose, and I suspect they weren't in a mood to lose it. So the chief priests, like many of us, the idea that God might be doing something new can be much more frightening and disruptive than comfortable. It's easy to become closed off in my own comfort or something I'm afraid of, or my desire to not have my life get disrupted, to not introduce a change I don't welcome. So none of us, the truth is that none of us, none of us will go through life, this life, your life, without divine disruptions, not any of us. And God will ask us to live by faith. He'll ask us to take a risk. He'll act us He'll ask us to live out sacrificial love. 
how many of us have had moments or even seasons when we experience God in a fresh way? We know he's asking something of us that might even feel disruptive to our life, and we just, we don't, we just don't want to go there. So we push it away. We ignore it. We don't respond to it. You know, you think about week after week, you know, we come to a church like this where we worship, where the word of God is taught so beautifully and so powerfully week after week after week. And I know because it happens to me that we sit in here sometimes and we get convicted. We could be sitting next to our spouse or our teenager and need to apologize to them. And we feel the conviction of the spirit right while we're sitting here. We leave this building and we don't do it. We just don't do it. We knew that was a prompting from God's spirit in us. You know, some of us go to counseling regularly and have the same kind of experience. Or, you know, we just read God's word and, and we know that God's prompting, asking us for something. You know, I had a, a, a lady that was in a church where I was speaking one time and her name was Jan. And we were talking about forgiveness and repentance that Sunday. And when she left, she didn't go home. She had a broken relationship with a friend that had been going on for several months and she left the church and went straight to her house. And she, she knocked on the door and she confessed her sin. She apologized and asked for forgiveness. She came back and told me about that. And it was not only was it life-changing with the relationship with her friend, but it's one of those times where she knew that that voice, that prompting in her was the living God. That's, that is the thing about this whole story in this chapter is that God dwells in us. He talks with us. He speaks to us through the word, through worship, just through the inner voice of God's spirit. He's prompting. And so every time we respond, we have a chance for something new to happen. I had a, a guy come up after the first service to come up today and tell me about a time he responded and, and what a difference it's made. And this was a year ago. And he came up to tell me today what a difference it's made in this last year in his life because he responded from something in here in this room. So here the truth is that if, if we don't respond, you know, what are we giving up? By not responding, we're giving up the opportunity to experience life change, to experience the movement of God in us. And if, if we don't do it, we're just, we're feeding the, uh, the struggle within us to make God come alive, to, to experience, not making, but experience God alive in us. So those chief priests, their response was going to direct their life in some really important ways in the very near future. So let's take a look at the second group of people and their response to Lazarus. So we'll pick it up in verses 12 through 15. So the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. 
And Jesus found a young donkey, sat on it, just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you see that you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. So Passover is a huge feast. Travelers come from everywhere around the ancient Near East. And the, along this year, it has a, a uniqueness to it because there is this buzz going everywhere without any social media, without any electricity, without any of that, the buzz is still flying through the crowd that there's a man named Lazarus that's here that was raised from the dead. Can you imagine how that would electrify, electrify the crowd and make them want to know what in the world, where is he? And so the Pharisees, you know, their whole plan was to get him arrested. Well, they can see the groundswell of people and uh, their plan's not working out because they're all running after Jesus and Lazarus at least to see what it's all about. So the key to, going, to understanding what's going on here in regards to the Passover and what really it means is kind of by, if we look at the two Old Testament passages that are quoted in here, it'll help us understand a little what's actually happening here. So the first one there, it's, uh, in verse, it's quoted in verse 13, Save us, we pray, O Lord, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's from Psalm 118, 25 and 26. So the beginning of that verse in the Hebrew where it says, save us, that is Hoshana, that's Hosanna. And that's what this literally means as the people are crying out, Hosanna, save us, save us now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So they're, they're crying that out in the streets. The other thing that's happening as this procession goes forward is that you see what Jesus does in response to this is he says that he found a young donkey, he sat on it, and he's coming in in this procession on a small, the foal of a donkey. So in Zechariah chapter nine, you know, this is the quote here. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Well, in Zechariah 9, 9, if you read the whole thing, it says, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation. Is he humble and mounted on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a donkey? So there's two things that have already happened here that are pretty powerful. They're prophetic kinds of things. The Hoshana is being, you know, save us, save us now. And then you have Jesus riding into town. It's funny, not on a horse, but a donkey, a baby, a small donkey. But it's a prophetic moment as he comes into town. But the thing is, again, it's so easy to misunderstand because any real king was coming into town on a big, beautiful horse maybe even horse-drawn uh, in some way, kind of a chariot type of a thing where it's going to be a coronation for a king. And Jesus comes in on a baby donkey. 
So you see the prophetic fulfillment, but you also see that he's not the kind of king they're looking for. And he is a man that right now is expressing both his grandeur and his power, but also his humility and his lowliness. Now, one other thing is going on that if you were to read the parallel passage, you would see is that people were taking their cloaks off and that's their outer garment that most people, most Jewish people had one of those, just one. They were taking their outer garment off and they were throwing it on the street. Underneath would be the donkey's feet. And that again was essentially the sign of a coronation. This is a kingship. This is, this is an amazing thing that's happening here. Now, the background behind this entire thing goes back to a time between the Old and New Testaments where there was a, uh, the um, Greeks had overtaken and were in complete control of Israel. And they, were, they had desecrated the temple and essentially had forbidden them to practice their religion. And there was a man named Judah Maccabee, part of the Maccabean, what they call the Maccabean Revolt. And he led a, an amazing, miraculous attack against the Greeks and eventually, after several years of fighting, he led them to retake the city and to eventually, now after the temple had been desecrated, to restore the temple, to get it up and operating again. And he became this hero. And what the Jewish people did back in that time is they took these date palm branches and they cut them. And in the parade, when they went around the city, they waved those branches, they waved them. And because it was a victory, they had been set free from the oppression of the Greeks. And so the, the palm branch from a date palm became the symbol, really like a political symbol, almost like they're waving a flag. It was, their, it was a military victory. And so about 60 to 80 years later, the Romans came and took over again and they chased the Romans out of there too. And then they minted coins. And on those coins were palm branches. You can go on the internet. I, I wish I'd have done this. You can go on the internet and just Google that and you'll see pictures of them. And so what's going on here in this moment is the people are seeing a king coronated, they think. That's what they think. And now they've got Lazarus who's been raised from the dead on top of it. And so you have this amazing thing going on here. And so this is really unnerving to the Jewish leadership, unnerving to the Roman leadership as well. But when Jesus comes in on that donkey, and then we're told in Luke that when he comes in the donkey, he stops and he starts to weep because he, he knows that they're misreading him, that they're looking for the wrong kind of king. They're not looking for the lowly and the humble king. They're looking for a military. They're going to come in and save their culture, save their country. And so they missed it, and Jesus weeps. And here's where I think, you know, you start asking questions. Like when I look at this story and there are some people in that crowd, undoubtedly, who are following Jesus and they're going to go wherever Jesus takes them. Like they are committed to who he is. But there's other people in that crowd who are in that crowd because Jesus is going to do something for them. 
And then you've got the religious leaders in that crowd who still want to kill them. So everybody's got the same information and you got people responding in all different ways. And here's just a, you know, the question sometimes for us in the culture we live in, just in our personal lives, how are we responding to what Jesus is doing? Am I with Jesus no matter what you're here to do? Or am I with you as long as you fulfill my expectations and my hopes and my understandings? In other words, we don't follow Jesus to get where we are going. We follow Jesus to get where he's going. And there was an awful lot of people that day who were following him so they'd get to go where they want to go. So if we don't keep our hands open, we might find ourselves in a, like in the crowd. That crowd, there was a number of those people that likely showed up at the end of the week chanting, crucify him. Because he wasn't who they thought he should be. So there's one final person to look at this morning and to see her response. And this is a, I just think a beautiful story here. And this, we're going back here to, uh, let me flip my, uh, when I read this one. All right, go back to verse one, chapter 12. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, the one who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having, chain, and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what, what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. This is a pretty amazing moment right here. You know, it wasn't too long ago, one chapter before, that Mary had fallen to the feet of Jesus, sobbing, begging for her brother's life. And Jesus entered into her suffering with her through his tears. And then, out of his good kindness and grace, he restored her brother. What was her response to Jesus? Well, she certainly didn't bury anything like the chief priest. She didn't leverage it for her own needs and desires like a lot of people in the crowd did. Her response was oil. The particular oil was called spikenard, and this is actually a little, little vial of it. This isn't expensive to get today. You can get it in Israel. You can get it in the United States. But it's an anointing oil. And, you know, we use this sometimes in our elder meetings when we're praying for the sick and others. And so it has a sweet scent. 
And so the, the text says that the whole house was filled with this smell. Well, Mary, why, you, can, you can use just a few drops and really get a pretty big smell out of the whole thing. But she used the whole pound. <laughs> it costs a lot of money. And it was in an alabaster jar that was likely an antique and in and of itself was probably quite valuable. So Mary breaks the jar and she uses an entire pound of this anointing oil on, and he begins, she begins with Jesus' feet. That was worth what they estimate to be about 300 denarii. So the average wage was one denarii a day. So 300 denarii, if you took the Sabbath days out of there, was easily about one year's wage, not counting whatever the alabaster jar would have been worth. And, you know, of course, Judas sees this and screams that the thing is being wasted. But she pours out everything she has in this beautiful act of devotion. Not only did she pour it all out, but choosing to pour it on his feet, nobody anoints feet with oil, especially feet in the Middle East. These are feet that have trafficked in dirt and dust and whatever all day long, every day. And this is the kind of job that only a servant would do. And truthfully, no one would use anointing oil on someone's feet. <laughs> she didn't care what the cost was. She, she poured everything out, no matter what the cost. And in anointing his feet, she didn't hold back anything in regards to her dignity. She didn't. But then it says that she takes her hair and she wipes his feet with her hair. So that means that she has to let her hair down because I'm sure it's up tight on her head. And that is absolutely a social taboo. She is breaking. But she doesn't care. She's not going to hold back any affection, worrying about what other people might think of her. She wanted to give everything that she is and that she has to Jesus. It was an amazing act of really wholehearted devotion. You know, when Jesus came to the, the, the grave of her brother, you know, he didn't hold anything back. And Mary was not holding anything back when she worshiped, when she gave of herself, of her wealth, you know, of her person to Jesus in that, in that moment. She gave him a priceless gift for what was going to be a symbol of, a little prefigure, if you will, of the costliest sacrifice ever made. And what happens is her response activates Jesus' response on her behalf. So Jesus rebukes Judas and tells him to basically leave her alone. Jesus says, you know, you don't realize it yet, but I'm on my way to my own grave. And Mary has unknowingly prepared me for my darkest day. What she has done will be told in memory of her. 
So in Mark 14, 9, it says, Jesus saying, and truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. And here we are remembering her some 2,000 years later. So there's really three really different responses that have happened here. Everybody had the same information. People knew Lazarus was real. He was out walking around. He could be seen by anybody that wanted to see him. And one group is so scared, so upset by it, they want to kill him. The other group gets blended into a crowd that is all mixed up with all sorts of responses to what's going on. And then you have Mary, who's given away the most valuable thing she owns, not just, not just the anointing oil, but honestly, a little bit of her, in, in her mind, maybe her dignity, and just not caring what people think about her. So the question, and this is a great question for all of us, you know, when Jesus does a work in our life, how do we respond? Or, you know, if we just have something going on, you know, we've experienced a loss We've got a new job. We have to move. We've lost a loved one. We have a financial problem. You, you know, the list, right? The list would be endless. Endless. We, you know, some of us, I'm sure there's people in this room that are going through the struggle of infertility. And, and there's so many things. And what this text is trying to say to us is that how we respond gives God a chance to ignite faith in us. It gives God a chance to tell us in a tangible way, I am present here with you. I am. But will you respond? Will you step into it? Will you repent if you need to? Will you give that costly gift? Will you say that difficult word? Will you humble yourself and admit you were wrong? Well, I don't know. Will you sacrificially give that gift? You know, when I was, uh, one of the little journeys I've had in my pastoral life is that I had a, a young woman who lost a child at birth. And, um, and I, was, I was a younger pastor at the time. And what was happening is after she lost the child over the next several months, her grief and her loss was so hard, so difficult for her, so painful that she was on her way to losing her marriage as well. And so I, I probably got uh, more aggressive trying to help to stop the marriage from dissolving too. And in the process of doing that, I, I hurt her pretty badly. And so she left our church. She left very upset and angry with me and 
it was a very hard situation, and I, I learned a lot from it. But here's an interesting thing. One year later, it was on the anniversary of their baby's birth, and I have absolutely no earthly idea, except for God, how I remembered this. But I was sitting at my desk in my, I'll never forget it. And I, I remembered, I somehow remembered that this day was Susie's, the birthday of Susie's baby. And I hadn't talked to her in, I don't know, eight months, I'm not sure, seven, six, seven months. And God's spirit clearly said that day, call her. Now, I gotta tell you, there wasn't one thing in me that wanted to call her because we did not leave on good terms. And um, I did. It took me a little while, but I did. And it absolutely opened a pathway to start healing our relationship. It was, this, it, was, it was the sweetest call you could ever imagine. And I just want to say, I, that little feeling I had or that I remembered it was her birthday, I can, be, I can say well, that's a coincidence I don't believe that any more than I think this shirt is, you know, red. It was the spirit of God. And he gave me a chance to choose whether I would respond or not. I might flunk every other one of those. And, and so what I just want to say is that this entire passage right here is an opportunity for us to understand how God can, desires to, and wants to shape our life by the way we respond to things that happen to us, to promptings that come into our life, to our losses and to our successes, to our blessings and to our hurts. God comes alive. So I'm going to put some questions up on the screen, just give you a minute or two to just respond to it a little bit. So the first one is this, simply, are you following Jesus to get where he is going? In other words, are we surrendered to his leadership in our life? Are we following him to get where he has taken us to? The next question, are you following Jesus to get where you are going? In other words, are we just using him for our hoped for success and blessing. The next one, what's, what most hinders you from responding to the disruptions Jesus brings? Fear, comfort, greed, or who knows what, something else. And lastly, is there a costly gift that Jesus is asking of you that you have been unwilling to give? And uh, as you just take a minute or two here and just if one of those questions jumps out at you, just think about what God's Spirit might be saying to you right now and how he might be asking you to respond. And another way to respond this morning, we'll have people up here after the service for prayer. And that certainly is another more than appropriate way to respond to God's promptings. So just take a minute.
close out with a response to God in worship. And I just want to so encourage you with God speaking to you about anything this morning. Find the courage, the space, the time to respond. You'll know something new about you and something new about God.